Hello, everybody, and welcome to the ianabernethy.com podcast. Uh, in this podcast, I'm bringing you the conversation I had with uh, Jamie Club. Uh, this happened uh, a few months ago, but I've only just so had the time to edit it all together. Uh, Jamie's been a, a friend of mine for a very long time. He's a guy I, I just love talking martial arts with him. I, I, I could chat with him for hours and frequently do. Um, which, <laughs> which is why we're going to split this podcast into uh, to two halves. So anyone who knows Jamie and anyone who knows me knows that the two of us can can talk. We can talk, and then when you put the two of us together, bouncing off one another, it's never a short conversation. So whenever I ring Jamie or Jamie rings me, it's normally you know a long conversation as we dissect various things that we've learned and various ways of viewing the martial arts and you know always fascinating conversations. So when I decided that I did want to do some conversation-based podcast as well as the the monologues, if you like the you know, what Ian thinks on Topic X that we've been doing for years and years. Jamie was the first guy that I thought of, really. Um, and I'm really glad that we got the opportunity to uh, uh, to do this. Um, as you'll see, that the conversation is, is quite organic. It, it covers lots of places. We tried our best to uh, hone ourselves into given given topics. But because everything's interrelated and the way me and Jamie think, um, it, the conversation drifts from A to B and back to A again. But uh, all of it's good stuff. I think you'll, you'll really in, in, enjoy it. So we discuss uh, uh, critical thinking, uh, martial myths, um, training flaws. There's all kinds of really cool stuff. And I can honestly say, you know, I've been doing these podcasts for 10 years, and this is definitely one of my favourites. When, when I listened back to the conversation, I was really happy with, with what we'd recorded because I wanted that, that feeling of letting you, the listener, listening in on uh, these conversations that me and Jamie so so often have. So, uh, obviously, Jamie introduces himself in the in the podcast, but, you know, it's, it's a really, really good listen. Now, the, the one thing that I did do, um, because this was a, a mistake, you know, I've, I've, I've recorded a few of the conversational-based podcasts since this one, and I've got it down to a fine art now, but on this one, as you'll see, my mic was set slightly lower than Jamie's, so uh, you can hear us both just fine, but my advice to you would be, uh, when you set the volume, <laughs> uh, set it for Jamie's mic, because I set it for mine, and Jamie kicks in, and it sounds a little bit uh, bit louder, so I don't want anyone getting getting deaf, but um, yeah, I'm sure you'll enjoy it, and I'm sure you can see past the slight differences in uh, in volume in our microphones. Yes, so without further ado, because this is long overdue, and I know you're going to absolutely love it, so this is part one, with part two to follow very soon, part uh, one of my conversation with my good friend and martial philosopher, Jamie Club. So here I am with uh, Jamie Clover. I've wanted to get Jamie on the podcast for a long time, and I've been in, uh, encouraging Jamie to do uh, his own podcast. I, I genuinely believe Jamie to be one of uh, a genuine martial philosopher, and our conversations we have always give me loads to think about. So um, I'm delighted to have Jamie here. So for the first time ever, we're recording one of our hours and hours of conversation we've had in the hope that listeners find it useful. So hello, Jamie. Hello, Ian. It's lovely to be on the show, and I'm a long-term fan of the podcast ever since its first day. <laughs> Very good. Ten, uh, ten years of them. So yeah, and I know. Yeah, noticed, yeah. I only just uh, noticed that when I was uh, that listening to one the other day when I was uh, cleaning out the stable, and I was listening and I, and I was listening to your um, reinventing violence one of that, and uh, and I realised, my God, yeah, these these uh, podcasts have been going on for over a decade. Well, I think this, this is, I think one of the things as well is that. Uh, 
obviously we, you know, we, as people know, if, 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 if you and I get on the conversation uh, on the phone, it, it's never a quick conversation. We're always on the phone for at least an hour. And a lot of the ideas from the podcast have came from like our conversations and often the way you express it. So although on paper, and we've said this to each other before, on paper, we've got radically different backgrounds. We, I would class myself as a traditionalist. And I think it'd be fair to say you class yourself as a modernist. And nevertheless, we find we have an awful lot in common. Um, so maybe just so people know where you're coming from, Jamie, if you could maybe just give them a little bit of a of your background and you know what arts you studied and what things you found useful for your own take on the martial arts and self-defense. OK, yes. Um, my background. Um, well, I, I, I tend to use um, uh, my, my growing up uh, um, normal family background as, as, as a reference point a lot for my training. Um, number one, because it's, it's quite different. But, but number two, because it, it has, has a genuine influence, I think, on a lot of things I do, whether it's consciously or subconsciously. Um, that is, I grew up in a traveling circus, um, pretty much one of the last of its kind, I would say, or certainly one of a out of a, uh, a dying era. Um, um, I, uh, I left the circus relatively early, but obviously you keep the connection through your whole life um, culturally. Um, I was around a, a lot of people who, who um, certainly knew how to handle themselves, and boxing was certainly a, a regular part of um, circus life. There was a lot of people. Um, boxing moves are, are, are a firm part of circus heritage and background, so I knew a, a fair amount about um, uh, self-defense on a very um, informal level. Um, learned a lot of my awareness skills. Um, directly from from my mother because again when you're living um, tra- traveling around the country and uh, um, going to different places um, where, where it's unpredictable um, the, the, where the area is going to be and you're you're always the outsider so to speak mm. um, it's good to be very much switched on and certainly when you're hanging around things like dangerous wild animals and things like that then you, know, <laughs> you, you learn awareness skills very early on my my formal training in martial arts began in um, in in a style called cicado which um, I believe is still in existence although I think the style that's still existence now is um was a sort of parallel system to one that i was learning uh, mine was the one that was founded by peter baines i started studying that in 1990 but prior to that i funny enough i got into martial arts as a complete distraction from my work um my uh, um my pet, my family's work in film business. They they changed from working in uh, in the circus to working in uh, live entertainment in general, and principally with the film industry, with so they ran a private zoo, um, and we ended up being uh, uh, living in the Cotswolds, um, which is detached from martial arts altogether. I mean, there was virtually hardly any other clubs in it around there. So um, I, I I got into martial arts very much from a fantasy perspective and comic books and things like that. I was very interested in ninjutsu for about a year and got everything I possibly could on it and uh, but I had no connection to it whatsoever or there was no schools or anything at all so I was trying to pursue that rather than just going down to your local judo club or karate club like like a normal person would do I was trying to go all over the country you know two hours away from Nottingham my poor mum driving me over there to, to do a bit of training and that but I, I fell out of love with that after um, to begin with and uh, and then I just went to the nearest unusual club I could get to which was Cicado uh, studied that to first Dan and then um, the, the clubs closed around the area, and I and I went to Taekwondo, which was and uh, which is what Cicado came from. It was a mixture of, uh, I'd say, American kickboxing and uh, um, ITF Taekwondo. I did, ta- did Taekwondo for two years. Gravitated towards American stroke European kickboxing. Um, ended up uh, getting involved in that, and then teaching that for four and a half years, um, where I pretty much learned the 
should we say the dark side of martial arts that's again an education in in all the things that they never tell you about in any of the films no matter how i mean <laughs> i'm I'm waiting to see a movie that really does show that side of martial arts which probably was my earliest insight into bullshit too which is um, the topic of discussion that we'll be we'll be bringing up i'm sure um and uh i I did that i did that say for four and a half years and during that time i i trained at other clubs while i was teaching at different places i did a bit of a screamer under peter lewis for for six months um i did uh you know cross training in uh, chinese martial arts which i did on and off for five years then into japanese jiu-jitsu i did dentacam which was a, a version of, a, of a hakaru lineage, lineage of uh, jiu-jitsu which of course comes from daitaru uh and then i got into uh muay thai um uh, i was just wanted to i, I loved them i was i loved kickboxing but i really really was uh fascinated in 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 learning muay thai properly i did that under tony hayes um, who's sadly no longer with us uh trained intensely with him i did a lot of private lessons with him trained in many classes i could get to with him and uh sadly um when his club started to deteriorate um it it worked well for me because he did a lot of fight clubs and a lot of very intensive classes that we that we did and i I learned a huge amount um from him in in that respect um eventually it closed down and i gravitated towards brazilian jiu-jitsu which i trained under bralio stemma for six years and all during that time i became influenced by uh, um by jeff thompson yeah. funnily enough um i'd learned about about 11 years prior to ever training with jeff he, he, he'd given me my big wake-up call when i'd read and I'd, I'd read martial arts magazines when i'd read uh in the page of combat magazine um jeff had been this heretic that had come in on the scene and uh and, and it upset me because martial arts were um i held up in such a, a high regard i mean to me it was just my complete fantasy escape if you like from you know a lot of the it's a tough life if you like connected to circus and and you know i, I mean out here in the cotswolds we, we have got a you know a lot of comforts and uh, nice but again it's a lot of you know physical labor that goes on you know you're living you know there's a lot of mud should we say that you're involved in things like that and martial arts were kind of my escapism and, and uh and also they were they were actually my celebrities in, in many respects you know we'd be working on a film set with some you know some pretty big directors and some you know fairly big actors and things like that but the martial arts world was a world that i didn't have contact with because i wasn't living any near any of the towns or cities so the, you know you'd get uh people who were like the stars of the, of the semi-contact um, world or the full contact world would be shown in the page of combat and they were my celebrities because mm. they were people i didn't have instant contact with it was quite it was quite weird you know in that respect but in came Jeff's stuff, and uh, you know, again, it, it straight, straight away upset me because I loved all the traditional stuff. I loved all uh, when I say traditional, probably what you would call quasi-traditional stuff, and mm. I, you know, and certainly all the mixture of um, uh, fairy tales about um, Shaolin monks and all the rest of it. And Jeff was the one who's kind of dispelling a lot of that. Um, and uh, but then um, I got involved in an incident where I'd say my fitness um, got me through in terms of martial arts, but it gave me a massive wake-up call. Um, like getting grabbed getting thrown on the ground um no streaming with blood um lot of lot, lot of rules that pretty much harken back to my sort of childhood with the circus and things i sort of instinctively knew but i'd buried under this this cloak of learning magical martial arts skills mm. if you, for want of a better word and uh, and when that happened i'd you know it wasn't
wasn't long around that time that I'd read Jeff's stuff and I started to think, well, actually, maybe he might be right. In fact, I think he pretty much is. Yeah. So I wrote to Jeff, got this lovely letter, handwritten letter back from Jeff on two occasions. I bought a couple of his books afterwards. He gave me some wonderful advice. And that, I think that's what probably made me gravitate out of Taekwondo into kickboxing, probably, and then eventually into Muay Thai and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, that kind of thing. And eventually end up training with Jeff. And I did a lot of private lessons under Matty Evans as well. And, um, and I've just befriended the whole Jeff yeah, that's, that was probably our first contact then, I guess. Yes. That was a, a, um, see, my connection uh, with Jeff was, uh, Jeff used to run a karate club uh, with a guy called Ian McCranner, who belonged to the, who's, if you remember, he was in some of Jeff's early books. And it, it, Ian was uh, a student under the, uh, the guy that I was training under as well for a period of time. So when I'd started saying about, you know, I wanted to start writing books and this kind of stuff, um, my instructor, Doug James, had suggested that Jeff would be an ideal person to get in touch with. And Doug had been getting Jeff up on courses as well, which me and my guys immediately thought, yeah, this, this is what we're looking for, you see. So I remember we first met, I think it was at an event organized by Tony Pillage. Is that, is that, is that? That is correct. Yeah, that's right. I, that's I still have the photograph of our meeting, actually, <laughs> <laughs> in the room I have now. That a photograph of you, me, and Tony posing together. Um, yeah, yeah. And I've got the certificate still from from that course as well. Because <laughs> I remember I was limping that day. That wasn't long after I dislocated my knee. That's I, right. I, I remember Tony uh, introducing us, and then us having a, um, a long yeah. chat about all kinds of things. And since then, I think our paths have crossed on a. A fairly well, regular I, basis, you know. If people I, I, don't know, by the way, just one little thing is, sorry. I mean, for those who maybe are just familiar with my stuff and not with yours, you're the guy that I'm, I'm gripping on the front cover of my Seminars 3 DVD. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, okay. So you might not remember that, but we went outside yeah. and we took some photographs because Summersdale were filming that, that event and you were there. Yes. So, um, so, yeah, and as I say, I mean, I think it'd be fair to say that our, although our backgrounds are radically different, I think that desire to seek um, the truth, if, if, you know, there is such a thing, but like efficiency objectively and to try and avoid those little pitfalls. Those, as you say, I mean, you said that, you know, part of what, what your thing was, you know, you, you've got these were your heroes and then you, you, you almost like if people criticize them, then that, that's a, an attack on people you admire and the arts are something that you, know, you say is an escapism that you've invested in. And certainly the traditional martial arts that I come from, they suffer with that terribly. They have all kinds of uh, dogma and uh, unquestionable things. So I think probably the thing that links us together and maybe why we do get along so well is this desire to kind of, well, we may not like it, but let's see where the evidence takes us. Would that be fair to say, would you think? Would that be? Yes, yeah. absolutely, Ian. I mean, the thing is, um, uh, I mean, to, to give you a bit of background on, uh, you know, again, again, how our paths cross from, from my perspective, um, I'd read about you a lot. I'd read several of your articles prior to um, us meeting. And that's the reason why I came along to the seminar specifically. I mean, I'm a guy who did, I don't have a white belt in karate. You know what I mean? I've been to probably about one or two, I think, formal lessons of karate plus any seminars that were either held by you or Chris Rowan. I think that's probably maybe um, uh, um, Steve Rowe or, or um, I'm just scrabbling to think of um, what other karate I've actually I've actually had any formal training under but i've got no official rank in in karate or any particular karate school um but what i was interested in when i was reading some of jeff's stuff was that he wasn't completely dismissive of the traditional styles i mean the initial shock in the system was the idea that he was against you know traditionalism what he was against was what was being taught but i but i'm reading between the lines you know first of all it, it, again as i said when i first started reading the stuff in you know it upset me because immediately it was um, 
seating all my sort of the ideas I'd built up about martial arts and, you know, the idea that it was, a, a, you know, and, and um, I wouldn't have described it as magical then, although I describe it as magical now. Do you know what I mean? It's like this idea of this secret set of skills that you learn them and immediately it makes you um, an, an amazing fighter, right? that sort of thing. Every Kung Fu movie ever propagates yeah. that myth, right? You learn the secret killer moves. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And human beings do it all the time. When they go, when they go to clubs after clubs, you won't, you know, really when you drill it down, you start finding out that's what is actually happening. You know, it's actually happening. It's actually the same story that they are often giving you. Um, you know, a lot of martial artists will, will say that, you know, on the surface, it doesn't sound like it. But when actually it comes down to it, they'll, you know, they, they, they think that, you know, doing certain certain series of movements will automatically give them, uh, make them a better fighter. And um but anyway, within Jeff's books, um, he, wrote, he wrote that, um, you know, these arguments he'd had with karate guys saying, well, you know, hold on, there are the, there's quite clearly there are these movements that are in the katas that you're banning either from training or you're saying about, you know, there are headbutts in there, there are, there, um, there is a hook, sort of a hook punch in there and to, to some degree. There is, uh, um, there is certain, um, techniques and there. there are grabs in there. There are, you know, and again, remember, you know, his background, you know, you know, he's coming from, um, you know, very much this, you know, it was the traditional side, but it was also the quasar traditional sides mm. as well that was being taught as well karateka against karateka you know which is why he was seeing all the problems and all the faults and again the same things happening in chinese martial arts too so um but he said you know you know he, he felt that you know that in that, that a lot of martial arts were giving uh, you know karate and kung fu that a disservice by not teaching these aspects and of course then i read that in your articles and, course, and there was something giving me when i when my um, wake up call happened. It didn't make me suddenly go right. Well, Taekwondo's crap. Do you know what I mean? The day I got the bloody nose and got chucked on the floor for for keeping my leg out to, to try and score a point when I should have been getting stuck in there, uh, wasn't the day that I went. I'm not t- going to another Taekwondo lesson again. I, c- I kept on with Taekwondo and I and I trained it parallel with with kickboxing and various other um, drivers. Let made me leave Taekwondo. It was only sort of retrospectively years later that I was thinking that a lot of the a lot of the training methods, not all of it, but a lot of the training methods around at the base of what I'd learning there was w- w- was um, making things uh, worse for me from a fight perspective uh, um, than than, uh, um, than than improving anything. So um, with that in the back of my head, and again I, I'd studied Chinese martial arts traditional Chinese martial arts as well. And there was always something in the back of me going, going well, you know, I, I can't believe that all these other systems don't work to a certain mm-hmm. degree. I don't, you know, it just doesn't, that, that just defies common sense. It just it defies, uh, but it defies reason, you know, when, when you look back at histories and background. I mean, you know, what, people have been living only, only until we got involved in heavy contact combat sports or mixed martial arts or, or even self-defense, you know, you know, martial artists were living in a delusion, yet some, some of these were soldiers, you know, fighting in war. And you know, it's, it's a. It didn't. It didn't make sense with that. So when I started reading your stuff, I was going, yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's just it. And it, it um, even though I wasn't a karate guy, it spoke to me in, in another way. It spoke to me to, to, to you know the rationale, if you know what I mean. So that, that's why I was interested. Oh yeah, I'd really love to go to. When I was talking to Tony, he, he introduced me to Mo first, Mo Teague, who mm. as you know was a big influence of mine, and I did a lot of did a lot of training under Mo as well. Um, huge influence over a lot of the, my approaches. Um, he, he 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 convinced me to come and see you. Um, he, he, he sees something didn't convince me and he told me if there was an Ian Abernethy seminar I said right I'm there mm-hmm. <laughs> and that was the end of it and, I, and that's of course you know when I met you um but what became interesting to me is that when I started doing a lot of your drills and all of the training together it just it struck me that pretty much this is what I was teaching in my classes but without the kata 
you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, and it was like yeah. we're arriving at the same conclusions and ideas. I was going, this is uncanny. And as more went on and more stuff I've read of yours and the more we discussed things, the more the training, the more I found that, my goodness, you know, uh, you know, I feel like I'm teaching a lot of what you're, you're teaching, but I'm just, the difference is uh, mine's not, mine's not referenced to a, no. to a specific base. Well, like well, that. Well, mine, mine's referencing cross-training, yeah. That's right. And, and we, we, you and I have had that conversation many times, you know, but, but it tends to be, I mean, obviously from a traditional background, they use cat as a yeah. central hub. But, yeah. but ultimately, we, we end up with pretty much the same uh, conclusions, you see. And the interesting thing for me is, I mean, I, um, although, you know, Jeff was, you know, and, and Peter as well. Peter probably got it a little bit less due to his status as an elder statesman of yes. uh, British yeah. karate, yeah. you see. But certainly, because um, it was effectively saying the same message, but certainly Jeff was one who was uh, widely lambasted for, as he put it, daring to point out that the emperor had no clothes. But yes. the, the irony for me uh, was when I look back at what a lot of the old masters were saying and what Jeff was saying, it was remarkably similar. Now, I remember the second time I think I trained with him. I went to a seminar that was organized by my instructor, and he was talking about, you know, uh, the completeness of, very art, of various arts and what, which ones are good for self-defense and which ones maybe not so much. And when he started talking about karate, he said, he says, karate, he says, it's a big problem. It's, it's not the syllabus. It's the fact that the syllabus is underutilized. You know, and that for me was, yes, you know, the Amen yeah. brother. That's exactly correct. Yes, you know what I mean? Yeah, that, yeah that's, absolutely. That, that's what I see. So, um, so I think that's, that's kind of probably covered for, you know, how we met and, and how our friendship has developed because of that shared uh, commonality. So maybe um, we'll play a little bit of intro music, make sure this bit's recorded okay. Uh, and then maybe we'll talk about some of the uh, the issues that we see uh, developing in martial arts, uh, some things that can obscure them from objectivity, uh, that sceptical approach. Um, so maybe discuss that after we uh, play a little bit of intro music. Would that be okay? That sounds excellent, Ian. Look forward to it. Well, so we, that worked. Me, me and Jamie had a few technical issues when we were trying to make sure this recorded. So I just wanted to make sure the first bit had uh, recorded okay, and obviously it did. So uh, we're now back, and we just like to say the thing that I think you know, unites us is that idea of uh, trying as much as any human being can not to get caught too much in the, the dogma and what we'd want to be true, and then trying to look at things uh, objectively. So I know the term that you use, Jamie, for that is you say about taking a sceptical approach. Maybe you want to define what that would be for people. Yes, um, I mean, to be honest, now now I'm using the term critical thinking because I think scepticism's <laughs> almost become its own dogma as well. If, oh, I think really? might... okay, let's, let's go with critical yeah. thinking then. Because I, I yeah, yeah, I, th I think we're on to that one, critical thinking, yeah. and and I'll let you. I'll give you. Uh, I'll give you the memo when when it changes again. <laughs> <laughs> it's like we have to keep changing servers each time it becomes a dogma. I think. <laughs> but uh, no, no, no. The reason uh, the reason why I say that, uh, and, that and that pretty much does. Um, I. I, I I just used the term scepticism because uh, that seemed to be um, it was a movement I was definitely interested in. Uh, there was various different authors from various different backgrounds. It was presenting something, but I, I was never naturally um, drawn towards scepticism or, or, or even critical thinking. I don't think you know. Sometimes people speak to me and they see how, how I'm passionate about the critical thinking of martial arts and and uh, critical thinking in general. I mean, I think it's a I think it's a skill that's under uh, taught in schools. It needs to be um, more part of our educational system. 
system. Um, but the the problem, um, I mean, as I say, inherently, I mean, I, I'm very much a romanticist. I mean, this is just, as, as, you, as you know, as I've described about my background in martial arts, I wasn't drawn to martial arts through, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, critical thinking. Certainly wasn't. It wasn't a dispassionate idea. It was, it was very much rooted in fantasy. It was a, a, outright fantasy. It was comic books that got me into martial yeah. arts to begin with. And then, and then, of course, what tended to happen was I started to obviously wanted to be able to use what I did, uh, what I was learning for real. I wanted to be able to have the ability to do it. And, and of course, my mind was going, well, I want to see what its purpose was and so on and so forth. But um, about 10 or so years ago, I think um, probably a bit longer than that now, uh, I really started to see you know, critical thinking as a, you know, as a, um, was interested in it, um, scepticism, um, and a sort of skeptical movement. And, uh, yeah, and I saw just how much it would, could lend the martial arts world. And, um, and, 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 and I come to the conclusion that just about all the pioneers of martial arts in, in different times were critical thinkers of, of some degree. Mm. Uh, yeah. The reason why, I mean, I used the word, I mean, I wrote a series of articles called Martial Arts Skepticism, which in some ways are the foundations of, of the, uh, the books that I'm, that I'm working on now, the Bullshit Sioux series. The, the, um, but I, I, I now would say move away from that term because it's become capital S american spelling skepticism and several people have now written articles to say that you know this is what this is our moniker this is what we support this is what we're talking about when we say skepticism so it's become yeah. capital s american well, spelling skepticism uh, and a danger with sorry go on i'm not just gonna say i think i think that's one of the which again ties in nicely with the, with the martial arts is there's this uh as soon as you stop being objective and 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 you you develop a set of dogma that you wish to protect Yes. Uh, then you're going to get issues. You see? And, and that can even, obviously, as you, you just stated, that can even apply to how you think about things in the first, the first instance, you see. Absolutely. So I was going to say, I think that, like, if you're looking at the founders of the arts, they, they have very clear ideas of what they wish to achieve. And therefore, generally speaking, we're quite objective about how to best achieve those ideas. What then, of course, is what happens is people, uh, it moves away from that. And it's like what Peter Constein calls the bad photocopy. So you get these kind of copies coming out and people not applying the, the, the critique. They're not, as the old saying goes, they're not seeking what they sought. They're teaching what they taught. You know, they, they, they lose the objectivity a little bit. And all kinds of bizarre things appear at, at that point. Like, um, like you know, in, in practical techniques, people will argue that practical techniques and training methods are, are must-haves simply because they were passed on to them. You know, I think of one subsparing from the, uh, the karate yes. perspective would be a good example of something that I, I can't see that has any discernible value uh, yet, nevertheless, has become something that, like, like dogmatically um, practiced. And you, you and I have talked about lots of those kind of things. Do you have any examples of other kinds of dogma that you see creeping, and maybe how we can oh, oh, plenty, them? this is I know this. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you and I bust them all the time. But I, yeah. I want to, like, I mean, just pick. You know, what, what do you think are some of the key ones, and we can maybe explore some of those. You know. Yeah, um, I, I mean, uh, when you, um, I mean, it's, it's funny you just mentioned that the, the one-step sparring because um, I could see how that could that could have started as a good idea, mm. uh, and and just to um, <laughs> just just to quote a, a favorite movie of mine, um, brilliant adaptation of a comic book, the, the, the Crow. The idea becomes the institution, uh, and uh, and I can see, for example, you know, if I was um, teaching a, a sporting aspect of of a martial arts so let's say i'm teaching um uh um 
boxing. Okay, we're looking at a boxing application or a Muay Thai application or anything which is what, that, that requires a simple cross or a simple um, jab or something like that. Um, you, you might have somebody just do that freeze frame stance with, with a hand out and then have somebody moving around the body, looking at all the different points and, you know, and training, you know, accessing different points so that they're, you know, they're feeding back into their mind. Um, here's where to hit, there's where to hit and like that. And that, and, and as, and as a drill within that particular context, that might be useful. That, I, I can see how that could be useful just as a, just as a, a, a simple memory drill, just to drill. Uh, but then, of course, the next part of it is that you would then, then have to um, start in, incorporating timing um, and then maybe even take it onto, the, onto uh, the pads or on the bag. And then, and then eventually, of course, then turn it into sparring or turn it into a sort of restrictive type of sparring and so on and so forth. Of course, what the problem is that you see like in, in the martial arts is that you see it with kata. Uh, the classic yeah. thing where, where people just do solo kata and they stay in solo kata and they don't see where the solo kata goes into another area. I mean, I never forget this in uh, when I was doing back when I was doing taekwondo. There seemed to be four uh, four sections of taekwondo and none of them seemed to be related to each <laughs> other. We were doing the patterns at one stage, it was obviously their you know their their, their kata their tool, um, and then you would and then there was breaking, um, which again we, you do, you, there were specific techniques that would work better for breaking where you'd make adaptions to break, which were definitely different from anything that was done in the kata just because of the way that, that they were generating the force to to hit and break break a board you know let's let's mm. let, let's, uh, let, let's specify this it's it, you, you know you, you learn how to break a board not learn how to generate impact and that and the, the two aren't automatically the same thing let's yeah. um, you know i think that's and that's a discussion I think that's another discussion isn't it altogether then you'd have your one step um, and then you'd like have your, your one-step sparring and, and uh, your two-step sparring, etc., um, which would have its own little subsection called self-defense, where, where, where I'd be scratching my head, going, well, "What the hell were we doing if we don't, if this wasn't to self-defense?" You know what I mean? You know, this is you know the student comes in going, "I want to learn a martial art. Why? Because I want to learn how to defend myself." And then you're going, "Well, this is one-step sparring, and this is one-step sparring for self-defense." And you go, "Well, what's that other one-step sparring for?" <laughs> and then and then you do sparring, and sparring wouldn't even resemble the one-step yeah. sparring. So, like, this is competition sparring. Okay, so now we've got competition sparring. We've got one-step sparring, which is traditional one-step sparring and self-defense one-step sparring and two-step sparring. Then we've got um, uh, breaking, and then we've got uh, and then we've got patterns. And none of them seem to be, you know, related to each other in any shape or form. So, uh, and uh, and I remember uh, Dave Fenton, um, guy uh, from the Wing Chun world, wouldn't um, not very very well known, criminally un unknown, um, but a, but a really really good forward thinker. And Alan Gibson, of course, who was part of my yeah, cross training yeah. in the martial arts series with yourself. Yeah. Um, both would argue that uh, Wing Chun got stuck in Chi Sao. You know, it, it, there were so many instructors. We go, you know, Chi Sao, would, you know, works as a good sensitivity drill. Indeed, I can see aspects of Chi Sao that you could extrapolate into uh, grip fighting, and therefore, um, you know, uh, the sort of thing that you'd see in judo or Greco-Roman wrestling. I can definitely, I can see a relationship with that. Um, certainly a lot of specific sparring i do which where we where you deal with the sort of the trapping in in fight around part of it yeah. it's it, it's it's there you know what i mean and it's and it's addressing a, an important snapshot of the fight unfortunately what it ends up being is just doing the cheese yeah, just that, doing the stick in hands yeah definitely and that's the, you know when you talk about taekwondo this is what I, I call this you know the three k karate you know kataki on akumite and never the three yeah. shall meet Yes, you know, exactly. You know, you know they're, they're all three separate disciplines that have been divorced from their, their objective. Now, if, if you go back, like Funakoshi said, you know, sparring does not exist apart from the kata, but for the practice of the kata. 
Yeah. You know, that they were all supposed to be kind of linked together and, and they've kind of lost that. And like you're saying there about, I think the Wing Chun ones are a really good example. I think all arts go through this to a degree. They, they, they start to specialise in a given area, start to focus on beating their own kind within the conflicts of the bout as they've decided. So boxers are who's the best punchers, judo are who's the best throwers, uh, Wing yeah. Chun guys, who's the best trappers. Yeah. You know, and then the lose objective of the way it fits in. So one of, you know, I remember this, this again, an early conversation that you and I had, this idea that drills, you make the drill and break the drill. The drill should never become the objective. And, yes. and I, I think that's definitely been a big problem in, in martial arts generally, that what's stopping the objective is combative function, but demonstrating being good at the drill. You see this in artist drills all the time. You yes. know, where you click, 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 they click, and it flows beautifully. And then the artist instructors that I know say, yeah, but that's, that's not the point. You know, that, that's, that's the, the doing the drill to get good at the drill and the losing sight of the, uh, um, the objective. So, But if I was, yeah, just to expand upon that, Ian, and maybe to also just to, I mean, I mean again, uh, the Wing Chun, I think, just, just to finish the part of that, I, I remember this being fed back to me by a very, very good Chinese martial arts instructor, um, but... Um, uh, um, who, 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 was, who was talking to me about Wing Chun, and he was there, saying, well, you know, yeah, over in Hong Kong, you know, they'll have a fag out the side of the mouth while they're doing the, that. But that, that image of, uh, of, a, of, a, of a chi sao drill with a cigarette hanging out the side of the mouth um, going on for three hours, um, and that just said it, says it all to me. You know, the intensity's all gone, and, and um, to me, the instructor was explaining to me, and he was a good instructor. I'm not, you know, definitely not uh, taking anything of that away from me. He had a lot of good natural ability, but to him, it was like he was explaining just, you know, how natural these movements become and to but to me later on when I'm looking at it, I'm thinking my god that's almost an example of um of just where the the institution ends up becoming do you know what I mean how that where the bubble ends up coming and it, that that starts becoming the person who who ends up just enjoying the drip just enjoying the pattern just enjoying the cata yeah absolutely because once you remove that objective test so yeah. you know, is this achieving the objective then what they do is people in, institute a whole different set of tests. So within the category, it's always, was, was your hand an inch too high or an inch too low? You know, this would yeah. be right or wrong. Now, I'm, I'm not saying there's, there's a place for good cutter and there's a place for a high level of muscle control, but the objective should always be, is this increasing combative efficiency or not? And as soon yes. as you introduce these other little side things, well, is it right to these arbitrary set of dictates? Then you start getting problems. You know, and it's interesting Obviously, with your wider background, you see that across the piece, you know, in, in lots of different systems. Yeah, and and some and just to uh, you know get this across to, uh, to to listeners who think that I'm just targeting the traditional or, or um, what what people perceive as being the traditional arts. I, I see it in in everything. The, the, the same problem does come across in a lot of the other different disciplines. A lot of other a lot of other different di disciplines might have the advantage of the fact that uh, they have got other drivers involved in their training that allows them not to get too involved in this, but they still make these same mistakes. Oh, um, yeah. For example, hitting pads. I mean, that's that, that's a client example. You and I would probably agree that uh, hitting focus mitts, um, hitting tie focus mitts, hitting boxing focus mitts, hitting the bag, uh, striking posts, etc., are a really, really good part of um, of both self-defense training and functional training in, in general. They're a really good element. They're a very important element to training. However, that also becomes its own institution too. And this was, and again, a lot of these things that with the critical thinking, you know, 
you know, it's easy to see, especially, you know, you see this in the world of skepticism, that uh, the person who's been the skeptic or the critical thinker um, is being quite arrogant, you know, coming in from a, a way of saying, you know, well, you know, you, you, know, you, you poor deluded souls, you know, I, I know the answer to, to this. But most of the time, I'm speaking from mistakes I've made and oh, yeah, things yeah. That, I've, that I've come across and just every step of the way and often recent mistakes as well, I hasten to add, you know, it's always added, you know, always, you know, my training always constantly improves in my teaching, definitely constantly improves from from noticing things where i've gone oh my god i've been quite uh, uh blind about that or I've, you know or something that, that that was my cognitive dissonance working there you know in a certain way so pads yeah classic example and this first came home to me and i think you might have you sat in on but back in the days when i had gradings i don't don't do gradings anymore but back when i had a taught a club and I had gradings and as you know i used to always bring an independent yeah. Yeah. uh verifier into my into my um gradings to, to look at it dispassionately someone who didn't have any background in what i was teaching but i but i would hope would be able to sit down and be able to see whether something was effective or not, you know, whether the principles were there. And that was my idea. That was my idea. That was the thing to keep me in check, if you know, as, as a teacher. And one of the gradings, and I, I think I spoke to you about this, it wasn't actually at the grading, but I, I said, um, you know, they're coming out uh, and sparring and people start to hit each other's hands. And this was kids that were doing this, actually, because, <laughs> you know, and they were hitting each other's boxing gloves. And it just dawned on me straight away, um, you know, you know they had made the transfer from the pads and only just the other day i was teaching um i was teaching a kid's uh, a private lesson and somebody just you know one of the one of the children reported back saying oh yeah we had a great time so we were hitting each other's hands and i was going oh it's gonna, <laughs> it's gonna happen again you know and and uh, and this is the, the point i make often at seminars you know i you know i get people to you know to, to focus on the pads and to and my attitude is this is that you know your pad holder should be a person of uh, you know, close to your own sort of size and weight, um, and, and know how to hold pads well. I mean, this is, I know, as you know, this is something that, um, Peter, you know, Peter Constantine was a big emphasizer on. Certainly something, you know, I took back from him a lot was, was, you know, good pad holding, you know, and, um, to get a good impact, you know, so you should be able to have, it's an object that you should be able to hit much like a bag without worrying about injuring the other person you know you don't have to hold back and you can develop your force you know to you know to as, as hard as you can so it's a great tool but as i said i always talk about this in seminars and say well um what do we get good at doing and of course we get good at hitting pads hard you know yeah. but we don't you need to do a, another exercise now that connects totally target referencing you have to do and you have to do it quickly because yeah. uh, you know, otherwise this is going to this will become part of it and people end up becoming really good hitting the pad i think that and then there's that part and then i also see it in shadow boxing see shadow boxing i'm a big fan of um even though i don't teach catters at all i'm a big fan of of solo drills and training because that's what most people are a given you know what i mean the, the average person to get any better at something will have to spend most of their time training alone even if you're in a club that trains you know and unless you've got the huge advantage and, and i appreciate the, certainly a lot of people involved in brazilian jiu-jitsu have this advantage where you've got a class where there's classes running all day long and you can train all day long and spar with people of a high caliber all day long and drill and work with them all the time chances are the majority of people, uh, most of their training will be done alone because it'll be done. It'll be their homework when they go to do their research. And I'm a big fan of this because probably because I've I've had to do a lot of that myself because of living living in a very isolated area and having to travel to do lots of cross training around the country. So uh, and taking the stuff home and training it and developing you know um, on, on what I've learned etc. And um, and so shadow boxing is important you know and 
I've had a couple of very good instructors point this out that a lot of people don't train shadow boxing mindlessly. What they do is they is they just throw all their favourite techniques out and they don't do it in any sort of productive way. They just train. Um, well, I mean, it's productive to a certain degree. I mean, you you know they're they're still learning. They're just still repeating throwing a punch or throwing a kick or something like that, and you know maybe maintaining a certain level of that. But they're not thinking about their opponent yeah. or how their opponent's going to move or what's going to happen. And you know, of course, you know, fundamental rules are things like an opponent is always going to move and the enemy will always move whether you like it or not i mean i've had this argument it, it came up in one of my uh, diary entries not long ago when uh we with somebody i was discussing about you know i said so there's one thing i can't you know i, I can't move i can't move on in my argument at the moment because i think it's consistent is the fact that your opponent will always move it's just, it, that, that seems to be one of the most consistent things that happens and you have to be able to accommodate that now Two two instructors. One was one of Mo's Thai boxing coaches pointed this out. Again, another Thai boxing coach that's sadly left us. Um, uh, Tom, I forget what his surname was. He was an excellent um, coach. Um, I'm sure listeners who are also students of Mo's and followers of Mo's stuff then will be able to tell me that his surname. But uh, he he said uh, he had everyone do some do some uh, shadow boxing in a seminar and said. Um, you're all, you're, you, none of you shadow boxing well. You know, you're all, you, all you're doing is just throwing all your, linking all your favorite techniques and combinations together. And that's all you're doing. And there's no perception of what the other person would be doing or what your defensive skills are going to be like. Um, and then there was, uh, and there's other instructors who said to me, um, you know, if you're training for, um, uh, uh, MMA or um, or a uh, holistic form of martial art or self-protection. When you're shadow boxing, you should be able to shadow everything. You know what I mean? Nearly everything. You've got to be inventive to be able to move. Every, you know, you should be able to be able to hit the ground, be able to get back up. All this kind of stuff needs to be accommodated. And this, you know, the, you you can do that. If you can't shadow it, then how can you apply it really? And that's you know, and how you how you really thinking yeah. about what you're doing. And I think that's a valid point. And then finally, of course, I spoke to um um. But Batman was doing TVP uh, Western boxing with, uh, uh, well, well, in, 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 Tommy Thompson, sorry, and uh, he had a great way of uh, getting people to shadow box. This was just been within boxing, but he would put people in the ring, and not only people like doing this, but he would call out and say, "Okay, you're fighting a long range opponent now. You're fighting a short range opponent now. You're fighting an aggressive opponent. There's someone wild swinging at you now. All this kind of thing." And he would be giving you a, a synopsis of your fight, if mm. you know what I mean. And, uh, and I remember training with another boxing coach. Um, the, uh, the, the, he was the runner-up to the, um, uh, the, the English uh, uh, light heavyweight championship, actually. He's now a wild animal trainer, believe it or not, from the circus background. But he was, uh, when he was holding the pads for me, he would always do that. When he was on the pads, it was the first time I'd ever had this come across. He would be there saying to me what stage of the fight I was in, what was happening, what I needed to do, you know, all yeah. this sort of thing. And, and this is just what you just don't see with shadow boxing and a lot of stuff with the pads. And, and, and cutter, yeah. you know, and, and yes. cutter as well, you know, just have absolutely no idea of what the movement is. They go through the movement mindlessly. Uh, same when they're hitting the pads, no objective of what the, the pads are supposed to represent. Uh, from my traditional karate background as well, is I mean, I was taught uh, combinations of movements that you would never apply in reality. You know, yeah. and, and these, these are widespreadly practiced movements, and you see it all the time. So, you know, knife hand, front kick, nukate, uh, yeah. front kick, roundhouse kick, back kick, back fist, all these really weird combinations. So yeah. what we did when we went our own way is, okay, all of the combinations have to be something that would serve an objective. That I, and people argue, well, I can do the movement. Uh, they teach me to move, but they teach you to move wrong. You know, yes. the, the, you know that, that, that's the point. You know what I mean? Is you may as well, by, you can't take up dancing or figure skating and expect to get a better fighting. You need to practice fighting movements. So practice them devoid of context, I think, is a big thing. 
and on the pads yeah. as well. I mean, just like I think the, the matrix thing is 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 important that that every training method we have has flaws within it. If it didn't, we'd be sending people to a hospital every time we train. So we can't hit a human being full contact, but I can hit a pad full contact. But the pad is not a human being. So there's, there's areas and, and, and faults there yes. as well. well that that is, is very much applied critical thinking yeah, there, Ian. Well, that, that's, I, exactly, I, that's actually right at the same When I write the, um, uh, the CSI approach I apply to Club Chimera, um, the, the, the methods I use, um, clarification, skepticism, individuality, and the, the skepticism, that would be what you describe there, the matrix approach that you have, which I definitely I apply to, 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 to the way I teach, um, identifying the flaw. And that's the hardest thing, I think, all the time yeah, well, with it, martial it is, arts. It, because every, I think one thing is as well, is because people, as we've talked, about they get so invested in the training that there are no flaws it's all perfect no. but, yeah, but, exactly. but the fact is everything you do will have a fault so so which because you see and, and people don't help themselves with this because you'll get people who'll go uh they will look for the flaw then try and reject the training method on the basis of that flaw and then people get defensive so for yes. example they'll say well in Canada there's no opponent there what's the point you know mm-hmm. or, or, but by, i always say by the same definition you can say well a punch bag doesn't hit your back never hit the back you know, yeah. so the punch bag doesn't hit your back, but it allows you to hit things hard in a way that you can't do to another human being without causing them harm. What the counter yeah. allows you to do is it allows you to move with aggression and intent in a way that you can't with a practice partner because you always have to hold back a little bit in order to make sure that they don't get harmed. So, like, I, I point this out in the seminars. I normally say, look, like, we're two hours in now. We've been practicing, you know, choking, gouging, elbowing, headbutting, kneeing, biting techniques that will harm a human being we've been practicing for hours and nobody has got hurt so by definition everything we've done up to this point has been wrong mm. you know i mean not morally wrong but but in, in terms of like a, a practically wrong because we, we, we're taking elements out to make sure no one gets hurt so at some point we've got to put those elements back in but those training drills in themselves will also have faults which is why i use that term um the matrix and there's nothing wrong with pointing out that te- techniques have or drills have flaws so long as you're aware of the positive points and the flaws in that drill are corrected by other drills is that kind of how you approach things too would that be definitely definitely we, we we are always doing that and funnily enough um that idea um what you call the matrix we used um uh, uh, so there's a there's a type of feedback loop that i have with, you know with, with training that's you know keep recognizing the, fl- the floor and re- you know uh therefore develop you know can the can, can the training be improved no if, it, if it's improved in this certain way then someone's going to get injured or or, um, it's going to create another problem that we can't um, deal with. Therefore, we need to create something that addresses that flaw. But whatever whatever we do addresses that flaw will inherently have its own flaw. Yeah. Uh, until eventually you start making up. The idea is that you have about three or four different fat training methods. If you put them all together, you get you get the real picture. Absolutely. That's the idea. Or as closely or as close as possible to the real picture. Now. Yes, very much so. And I had that at a seminar now, and I appreciate that. My, my podcast seems, sounds like as if I'm giving a tribute to all, to all the people who've, who've passed on. But there was a Wing Chun instructor who went on to become very much a self-defense instructor called Andrus uh, Millwood. Um, uh, he was very uh, avid cross-trainer and a supporter of um, Club Camera Martial Arts. He came in to a few of our seminars. And he actually, funnily enough, when I was showing him about the development of this, he pointed a flaw out. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I'll have to go back to it. But there was something I was teaching in a method and he went there's a problem with that and then he addressed it in the and we had the conversation in the seminar and we included it 
yeah, in yeah. the training method. So that actually was happening there. And to me, that is a very exciting happens, sort of ground up way of training. Yeah, you know what I mean, that is critical thinking working. It happens yeah. all the time to me. So I'll create a drill where I think, okay, this will cover it. And I'll watch the students do it and go, ah, hadn't considered that. Yes. You know, and you yeah. see the floor. So you go, right, I'm going to have to amend the drill as, as, as we go. But I think, you know, like, there's a lot of people listening to this will be, well, traditional karate. And, and I'd like, for example, I got an email uh, only today saying, how do you include randomness in kata? You know, we, we need randomness in combat. So how do we get the randomness in kata? And I thought, well, you need randomness, but the kata is not the place in which to get it. As you say, it's that matrix, the idea that, you know, from my traditional perspective, we start with the kata, then we practice the drills, then we identify the underlying principles so we can adapt and vary, then we gain live experience of doing it. So it works when it's part of a process. But yes. when we, we move it from the process or it becomes an objective in itself, then we get problems. You see. So I think that's uh, and again, it's we not very much seem to agree on, I think. Yeah, but by embracing critical thinking, that allows you to do that because that means you, you, you number one, you don't accept absolutes. You will always understand that there's going to be a flaw, there's going to be a problem, that everything has to be progressive. But then that gets back to the point, this idea of finding the flaw in something, that's very, that's more in line with science, mm. you know, and, uh, and I think um, what, what that tends to happen, what that tends to then put across to people is the uncomfortable realisation that, um, none of the masters were 100% right. Yeah. They all made mistakes. They're all human, and no system is, is perfect. And people say this as a sort of a, you know, they'll say this as lip service, but they won't actually address it. Just to jump in on there, yeah. Jim, just to make a, like a point, because that's yeah. absolutely right. Now, I remember watching very recently a, a documentary on the, the, the Hadron Collider, you know, the, the insert. Yeah. And yeah. um, it was following, you know, them setting this up. And one of the guys who set it up, when the results came in, he films him in his car, right? So he's driving away and they've seen the first set of results and he's pondering to himself and he goes, right. He says, so those set of results mean my entire life's work is wrong. He says, yeah. and that's really, really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So to me, that was, that was, I thought, there you go. Cause he, what, what he's, he's objectively seeking is the truth. So, so, so yeah. through his, his work's not wasted because it's ruled out. We know that's, that line's a dead line, you see. Isn't that, the, isn't that also the idea with what happened with uh, um, Stephen, uh, Stephen Hawkins? I think it was when he went for his PhD. And uh, uh, they certainly present it in a very uh, – uh, it's, it's written in a dramatic way in the, in the, in the, in the biography on him, the biopic mm -hmm. on him. Um, so I don't know if it exactly happened like that. But it encapsulates that whole idea where, where they uh, – you know, they're impressed with his PhD. They accept his his uh, his theory that he's come up with um, his hypothesis. His theory he's come up with, and it's you know it's, it's revolutionary, and it's, it's going to change so many things. And he said, well, "What are you going to do now?" He says, "Well, now I'm going to work my time to disprove it." <laughs> uh, and, and and to have that kind of you know, and that and to me that is really and that's so humbling, don't you think? I mean, it's, so people talk about the you know arrogance when you're being critical about certain things, but I think it's more humbling because most of the time you you keep admitting your own you know by saying there's faults everywhere, you admit you, that you're oh. at fault as well. Well, I, 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 absolutely yeah yeah so like but, but with me with like um with my uh, karate background I, I would like like to some people i'm a defender of karate and to other people i'm a heretic and a critic absolutely you know, yeah and, yeah, and, yeah and can it see depends that. which objective you but my own take is what I'm, I'm generally trying to do is make karate as for me and mine as good as we can make it and i don't help that process if i choose to turn a blind eye to what i perceive as obvious flaws Yes. Yeah. And funnily enough, um, you know, you, 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 uh, you know, I, I find that with um, it's probably the reason why we're in my cross training. I've never fitted into any particular camp. I, I find that, 
you know, uh, there'll be people from the traditionalists who, who, who will love what I'm saying, especially when I start, you know, defending um, traditional martial arts. Um, when you, when you've got like the you know, the very hard line on on the combat sports community or the self defense community, when I'm saying, well, you know, you you can't dismiss all these martial arts as, as never being pragmatic or not having pragmatism at their core. You know, the the evidence um, doesn't show that. You know, the, the evidence doesn't show that. Um, it's it's not rational to 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 come up with this idea that what you perceive as being karate or what's being represented by to be fair, the majority of karateka is actually at the heart of what what, what was meant to be when 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 uh, karateka was first being taught. You know, its foundation doesn't make sense. And you know, the traditionalists will love me for doing that, and they'll they'll you know they'll and I'll, and I'll give the evidence, and I'll get often providing a lot of information from yourself, and from Alan Gibson, or from um, a wide variety of different uh, sources and primary sources and historical sources, and I'll, and I'll do that, and I'll fight that argument. The traditionalists will go, you know, so you know, so I've earned you know friends through that. But in the same breath, you know. They they won't like it when I start picking out, picking apart that there, are, you know, there are problems in martial arts, um, both in the modern modernization of traditionalism, what we call mm. quasar traditionalism, but probably also in, um, and well, definitely in, you know, historically in martial arts as well. I mean, the, the, you know, it's, it's the idea that all these systems were, you know, at one time were perfect. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, it's nonsense too. You know, yeah. you know, but you know, bullshit too does go back a long way. I mean, I have done a line when when I was writing. Bullshit. So I spoke to you about this before, where I said um, I decided to give myself a bit of a line where I'd say, "Well, you know, something is if something is something is wrong. It's always been wrong. If something is is delusional or is uh, is pseudoscience or is magic, or if you like, you know, it's always been that. You know, it, you know, I'm not going to say that at one time it was okay and now it's not. But what I can say is I, I can give someone a bit of slack if at that time there was nothing that would have convinced them otherwise you know that was that was more than the um um i won't don't say mainstream idea because i think a lot of mainstream ideas in martial arts are fundamentally wrong and we can see them as being fundamentally wrong and they've got no reason to be but yeah. to, to be as wrong as they are but um it's different when you're living in a time when when certain with certain things that we take as granted um as being scientifically proven do you know what i mean it, yeah. i think this will yeah. be a good point jamie if we because yeah. uh as the listeners won't know but you and i know we've because you and I can talk about things and go in all directions. So one of the things that we wanted to talk about was, was martial myths, you know, historical yes. myths. So it, yes. might, it might be a nice time to just have a quick break, give the yeah. uh, listeners a little break, and then we'll come back and talk about the historical side of things as well. Excellent. Yeah, cool. Spot on. Well, how cool was that? I really did enjoy that conversation, and I hope that you enjoyed listening to it. Uh, the great news is, of course, we're only part of the way through. There's a, a part two to come. Uh, in part two, we discuss uh, self-defense training for children, along with lots of other things. Uh, but that's a topic that often comes up in the uh, Q&A podcasts, you know, about teaching children. And when it comes to the self-protection side of things, Jamie is literally the guy who wrote the book on this topic. You know, is uh, when we talk a bit about his um, his book and, and some of the things that he's found. It, it's fascinating. Anyone who has children or teaches children, uh, you, you'll want to have a listen to that. And of course, you know, as you've 
as you no doubt know now, me and Jamie, will, as we have our conversation, will touch on lots of other things uh, besides as well. So, yeah, so thanks once again for listening to uh, part uh, one of this. Of course, be sure to check out Jamie's podcast as well. You know, so you've got um, Protecting the Frontline. This is a Jamie Club uh, podcast, excellent podcast, which I'm sure you'll really enjoy. Uh, and another podcast from a friend of mine is Marshall Journeys by Gretchen Carlson. So I'll just finish off by letting Gretchen tell you all about her great podcast too. Okay, I'll speak to you soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. This is Gretchen Carlson from the Marshall Journeys podcast. If you listen to only one martial arts podcast, who am I kidding? Listen to the Ian Ebernethy podcast. But if you listen to two martial arts podcasts, maybe give the Marshall Journeys podcast a try. 